Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dissecting Education. Today, I'm so excited to be here with a friend and colleague, Walter Balzer. Walter is a leadership instructor at the University of South Florida and the University of Denver. His scholarship seeks to help organizational leaders adapt to a rapidly evolving information ecosystem, specifically applying open source mindsets and systems to learning-based organizations. He is the founder of the Open Partnership Education Network, learnopen.org, a community-based learning platform, and radschools.org, a collaborative supporting K-12 schools and agencies. His ideas have been featured in academic journals, popular media, and a recent book chapter in Media, Technology, and Education in a Post-Truth Society, from fake news, datafication, and mass surveillance to the death of trust. Thanks for being here, Walter. All right, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, really appreciate being on the show. So tell us, start by telling us a little bit about yourself that's not in your bio. Ah, uh, so thanks, Mel. Thanks uh, for inviting me and great to be here. Uh, so what's not in my bio, because um, uh, it, it gets truncated down to the current, right, is that uh, <laughs> I was a, uh, an educator and, you know, uh, across the country really for almost 20 years in the K-12 space as well. So a lot of my bio really focuses on the recent work around um, program development, scholarship, and so forth. But really all of this is rooted in the schools and the work that, that goes on in, in that, that world, that life, uh, in the hallways and so forth. And also what's not in the bio is I was born in Spain and lived in Madrid and Barcelona as a kid and moved here as a as an elementary school kid. And uh, that's very much part of my my identity as well. So just a couple little facts there. Yeah, I love that. Love that so much. So um, for the listeners out there, Walter and I have known each other for about three, four, five years now, <laughs> a number about of- About four or five years. Four or five yeah. years now um, in a number of different ways in a couple of different cities, ironically. And um, one of the things that, um, brought us together in the first place and also continues to be um, of your passion is around open. So tell us the, tell us about what that is. Give, give them the, the full background of kind of what it is and, and where it, where it has shifted and what it's doing now. Sure. So uh, that's, we really met around the, the open creation period uh, mm-hmm. when you were leading uh, seed spot and entrepreneurial uh, boot camp there for, for students and learners. And, what, uh, what we were doing then, and this was back in 2016, 17, was creating a community-based learning platform. Uh, and it, it eventually evolved into becoming what's today learnopen.org. That was being created out of the University of South Florida. Uh, and that is the Open Partnership Education Network. That's what open stands for. And so the idea is, can we create more of an open source system for community learning where anything from uh, panels and discussions to possibly, uh, you know, clinics and workshops on gardening, what would happen if you were to follow some of the principles of open source thinking and systems like that on a community-based platform? So we launched Learn Open as a um, proof of concept out of the University of South Florida and think of it like an Aspen Institute or a TED uh, with a community bent. So all of these panels and discussions are curated, co-curated, and co-produced by 
thought leaders in the community. And then the follow-up that comes from that uh, is, is also very community-based. So if you have panel discussions or discussions, community conversations on urban agriculture and healthy food, well, that's great. Everybody gets inspired. What do you do afterward? And that's what we did with Open. Uh, as part of that, we also created um, different themes and that's part of our framework. So to fast forward, Open started at the University of South Florida and it ran through the university for its first three years. Uh, the university uh, reached out and asked if we would like to uh, spin it off. Uh, the original founder, uh, Mr. Rusty asked if we would like to maybe spin it off um, as a private enterprise and see where it could go. Uh, once it had um, evolved from the university. So that's where we're at now. We've developed a white paper that will be um, published uh, most likely this month. Uh, it's pretty much done. We're just finalizing some of the editing. And that articulates the framework and the history of open. Uh, and the idea now is to see where it goes in its new um, home as a private enterprise. And we'll see what happens. It's a nonprofit and a for-profit uh, hybrid. Um, so yeah, and uh, the, the white paper will kick that off, but we've been also developing some backend tools to kind of make this happen as, uh, as a platform, as a full-fledged platform as well. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about why you're passionate about this kind of learning, right? So this podcast is all about different styles of learning, different styles of education, and, and this idea of community uh, collaboration and community learning um, is a, really at the foundation of this. And what about that gets you like fired up and excited? So it was really a serendipitous kind of uh, series of events that led to creating Open. Uh, but I was already doing that work when I was doing my graduate work, my doctoral work at Boston University. So when I was at BU, uh, the folk, the focus of the work was really on this decentralization of learning period. And that was really brought by new capital and a lot of the private capital that was coming into education broadly. So not just K-12, but higher ed, startups, ed tech. So there was a lot of interest in learning coming in from foundations, uh, Silicon Valley, and that fascinated me. When I went to BU, I didn't expect to go into this kind of work, even though I was passionate about technology and the intersection with um, new ways of learning. My passion was really um, at that point focused on um, Hispanic students, Latino students. A lot of my work was in that space. And, but what I realized when I started to do my doctoral work is there's this tsunami of uh, innovation and influence and power that is, that is an undercurrent and that is going to shape the future. So it doesn't really, you know, like the work that I was focused on was important, but I could see that the future was going to be transformative and paradigm shifts coming. So that's when the work turned to following the money and understanding how capital flows into public education generally. Now, when I got to USF and was hired to create this program from scratch, the goal was to create something that was community-based uh, and that would... Uh, create a platform of some sort technologically, but also in frameworks and that would bring the community together around learning. That was awesome because I was working on a concept called edvite.com. That was kind of like a tech-based version of that. It was just a proof of concept bootstrap that I was working on. 
So morphing those ideas into open is what led us to create open as a platform that had real world events, uh, media, and then some basic technological tools to bring the thought leaders together. So the long story short for the, you know, the passion around that is it's been an evolutionary step. Like the passion is really about how do we um, bring resources together in an efficient way? How do we bring ideas and people together? But then you have to build the tools to make that happen, including a brand, including some kind of platform that gets that happening. And that's what we did with open with, um, you know, very uh, lean budget, we were able to kind of prove you can do this. And, and this is what it looks like. And so at learnopen.org, you can kind of see the body of work from what we did over those first few years. Yeah, I, I love this, uh, you know, this kind of circle of life in terms of, you know, how you bridge community with community based action. And, and or I should say community learning or, or kind of learning that happens because so much of what we do, right, is we, we gather together, we have these talking circles and then nothing happens, right? And there's no mechanism to help spur that action. Um, so what are your, you know, where do you hope this goes? Where, what's your, your long-term vision, uh, your, your big picture vision? So the, the white paper uh, is going to uh, present a roadmap. And if you look at the roadmap of open, we are in the first third at the end of the first third in terms of this roadmap. So someone who may have engaged with open locally in, in our community may sort of feel like open was there and someone who's never touched open or been engaged with open, it will be the first time that they've ever engaged with the organization and the ideas. So where it is going in the, in the white paper and what we described there is from the beginning, Open was about creating a platform that included not just events and experiences, but those tools for the follow-up. And that included a wiki or a space where if you go to that discussion, how do you keep those thought leaders engaged to share ideas and files and get working Google Docs? Because that's what happens, right? We get together and we're like, hey, yeah, let's connect. But where, how, right? It's a, it's a diaspora of like information and content and institutions and priorities. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we tried to create a platform that, uh, that used whatever tools we had at our um, availability, including Google apps and so forth to create some simple wikis that allowed people to get ideas out there in fuzzy mode and follow an inductive process. You may pick up on that. It may take years, it may take months, but the principles that we were deploying were based on what developers and software developers have done in the open source community. So if you go to GitHub and I've worked in that space uh, in portal development for about 15, 20 years or so, kind of torturing myself to kind of learn and you know work with developers. So I've seen the evolution of open source um, from a front row seat. And it's been fascinating how you see software and ideas develop. Uh, thing, things get, they get proposed and they may not move for a while, but then somebody picks that up later on. That was kind of what we were trying to do and what we are trying to do with Open is can you create a platform where folks have these ideas and you create momentum and then you have additional follow-up opportunities to bring these thought leaders together again. 
And we did it with uh, several use cases where we brought people together around urban agriculture and sustainable food. We mm -hmm. created holding environments for these thought leaders to get together, to continue to talk about these things. But then we created some tentacles with the policy side so that you could actually affect local ordinances. And so we've seen the power of bringing people together and allowing for that continuity to create shifts and changes, but it has to happen at the community level. And that's the goal of open moving forward is we have a lot of platforms out there like Ted or Aspen Institute. Uh, we're focused on the community side. How can we have these conversations and then have um, some tools to bring people together at the city level and the municipal level so they can continue to do that. Right. Absolutely. So one of the other initiatives that, um, that kind of spun out of, uh, well, Ecotura, the same thing, the festival that was happening around the, the start of, of Learn Open is, um, was Rad Schools. So I know that that is something that, that you have, that the nonprofit that you um, found, help found and um, work through. So tell us a little bit about that and about the work that, that you're doing there and what you hope to do with Rad Schools. Sure. So, um, I, and I know for your listeners, it, some of what I'm mentioning may seem abstract because it's kind of, you know, white paper or this or that, but you can go to learnopen.org and just see it because that's the easiest thing to do. And we have a pretty clear um, explanation page, the explain page that describes what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But as part of that framework, what we describe is, well, how do you bring these ideas together? You need a certain amount of compartmentalizing to do that. And one of the ways that our framework um, works is by creating themes, community themes. And so Open has six core themes that are interdisciplinary, but they provide a little bit of compartmentalizing around these discussions or these events uh, or these initiatives. So, for example, a theme that we have, and these can change over time. Again, the white paper articulates an open source way that you can have theme leaders decide, look, this theme has run its course, let's change the theme. But the themes that we've had over the years is future city. This focuses on conversations around urban design or city design, um, civic um, sort of um, technology conversations. Again, it's fluid. Uh, another one would be seeds, which focuses on food and sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, but another one is rad schools. So we started a theme that focused on K-12 topics. And the idea is to take these conversations around schools and K-12 out of uh, the traditional um, circles of, of conversation around this. And some would say it's kind of siloed. So maybe it's well, who has K-12 discussions? Well, it's the local ed foundation. Okay, great. Or it's the school boards. Great. Um, well, let's take them out of those um, silos and let's bring in different groups. What would happen? So rad schools became a theme and long story short, rad schools evolved into its own nonprofit called radschools.org. And the focus there is to provide support to schools nonprofits, agencies focused on in the education space to help them adapt to this uh, incredible shift that we're seeing in learning. So we've been working with an organization out in Colorado uh, to bring their programs to e-learning. We've done some feasibility reports for micro schools. Uh, so we're always there to try to help um, in that space specific to the K-12 environment and nonprofits around that space. So that's kind of a good example of how open is a platform for 
kind of ideas and other things to evolve. That evolved into uh, a nonprofit. So that's kind of um, the goal of, of Open is to let those ideas go from events, bring people together. What comes of it? We don't know what will come of it, but that's what came of that. Right. I love that so much. And it's, it's such good, um, it's such good foundation for, a, or I should say illustration of like what can happen, right? Like this was yeah. an idea, this was fleshed out. There was a energy around it and then it became yeah. what it is. And then it can continue to evolve in its own way outside of that. But, um, but kind of watching a real life example of something that comes out of it, but Exactly. The energy that that's created when you bring people together. And there's other use cases I could share. I won't do that here right now, but veterans groups created a completely different uh, uh, energy. That energy created a different deliverable. Mm -hmm. Rad schools created that deliverable. But that's the idea is you bring people together and you create some kind of uh, framework magic happens, but you don't know what that will be. And that's a very big shift in our thinking is that we don't know. It's just energy right now. Right. And one of uh, the, the famous Walterisms that I love um, is, is fuzzy thinking, right? Fuzzy ideas yeah. and fuzzy thinking. So it's one of my, my favorite concepts because it is so illustrative of the place that we all sit at a lot of times when we want to be innovators. So tell us a little bit about kind of your definition of that and what that looks like in, in kind of your world. Absolutely. I, you know, I use that term a lot and I believe strongly in the discourse that we set as leaders um, that will produce a certain uh, philosophy and ethos and that will produce certain products if we do that. And fuzzy thinking for me, I've had, I've been very influenced by technologists and how they get things done in most recent years watching hackers and uh, I, I use that euphemism, but uh, watching developers specifically in the decentralized apps world in the blockchain developer world, ETH Denver, um, other environments, plus the years that I worked with technologists building portals. Uh, and I wouldn't c consider myself a coder or a technologist, but I've certainly worked very closely with them over the years. And I just love the inductive thinking of a lot of the developers if you walk into a hackathon and you already know what the end in mind is and you say, yeah, I think this is what the app should look like and this is how it should function, you'd probably get just booted right out of that team because you need to come in with some fuzzy thinking and get other people around that. That's a very core uh, value of that, that goal and that culture. Mm -hmm. And I think we need more of that. And that doesn't necessarily jive with um, institutional thinking sometimes, and we need to have an end in mind. We need to have a clear plan. So fuzzy thinking to me, uh, is very much in line with the rapid flow of information that we are in today. Uh, this, um, this technology rich environment that we're in today, I think it demands that we present things in a more fuzzy state and be confident about that, mm -hmm. but say that. And that's the thing is, I will observe leaders in crisis or leaders dealing with scenarios. And when I hear them say, we have a clear plan, I immediately know they do not have a clear plan. And so <laughs> where's the vulnerability? So I want to see more talk like, I have a fuzzy plan and I'd like to share that with you. And what that is, is code for, 
uh, vulnerability and code for, I want your input. Mm-hmm. So when I say fuzzy, what I mean is this is energy that I'm putting out there. I've created some kind of, you know, like a structure, but I'm really just soliciting your ideas and I want to get this out. But that opens up a whole nother level of development that we have to get to around, okay, well, how are you going to share those ideas? Because if you're going to do that through email, that doesn't get fuzzy ideas in an inclusive, transparent space to flow. So there's a lot of work that we have to do in our organizations and our leadership to try to get there. But fuzzy ideas and fuzziness period goes a long way with just a little bit of discourse. Mm-hmm. No, no question about it. I, I love the concept of fuzzy ideas because we as a society tend to be so metrics driven that we're very uncomfortable in the ambiguous, right? And it really does to your point about you can't show up with a, a hard set of, um, you know, what's going to come out of this in every situation. Like there are certainly situations where you have a goal and we need to get to some place, but, and, but the destination or kind of the windy path on how we get there may be the fuzzy part, even if you kind of all know this is the pinnacle of where we're trying to get to, but being open enough to say there's, you know, 12 ways we can get there. Let's explore the different ways and the pros and cons of how, how we get from point A to point Z. And, and maybe, you know, in other situations, there is no point Z just yet. It's, we have this whole toolbox. What can we build, right? What can we build that's valuable? What can we build that is, um, you know, of use to, to someone or to the world or, or whatever. Um, Yeah. And I think there's ways we can operationalize this kind of thinking because it can sound flaky when you just say it like it's just verbiage, right? Um, mm-hmm. But what what I seek to do with some of my colleagues that we're really looking at leadership orientations toward openness is what we refer this as, but we draw on open streams of, um, of thinking uh, or streams of thinking around open. So open innovation, open source, there's, there's a lot of energy around this. Um, what we're really trying to get to is how do we make, how do we operationalize this? How do we make this, how do we take it from the abstract and make it into practice mm-hmm. uh, and transform it to practice? And there are real tangible things that we can do. So fuzzy thinking is just a term. It could be like, oh, that's cliche, whatever. But no, really what we're saying is um, if you are a leader in an organization and you begin deploying thinking like version thinking, so mm-hmm. you put out a plan to your team and you say, this is version 0.1, these are my fuzzy ideas, and guys, this is on the Google Doc, so please comment openly. You have totally changed the dynamic of co-creation in your organization. But Mm -hmm. first, you would have to analyze yourself and do some inside out work to determine whether that's really what you wanna do. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of work that I really get passionate about is, and, and this goes back to the original questions around, you know passion around community learning it's really not community learning that i'm passionate about that's not really it's about co-creation that's what i'm passionate about and that's rooted truly in having been in organizations and schools and learning organizations where that wasn't happening but you could see the pent-up energy Mm -hmm. if we could do that you know if we could get out of that uh, hierarchical top down and create a truly distributed system we've been writing about this for decades but how do we do it I would argue that today you have to, you just have to, you know? Yeah. And it brings up a a really good point. So we talked, um, I know that you were recently on, we both have a colleague, um, John Dingler, who does the work ethic podcast. And 
I know that you guys got into a really deep discussion about how do you kind of revolutionize education and can we, the big debate that John and I had when we chat is, can you do it from the inside or does it have to be done from the outside? And in I, as, as a centralist as I am in these kind of conversations, philosophically, right? I feel like you have to work from both ends and at some point we'll, we'll meet in the middle, but there has to be really passionate people working on both sides of that, of that coin. Um, but talk a little bit about what you see as kind of the biggest, I mean, we all know what the, what in general, there's a long list of challenges in education, but from your perspective and the perspective of the work that you're doing, what do you see as the biggest challenges and where, where do we start? I think there's a tool. I apologize if it's a little loud out there. Um, so that is, uh, I couldn't agree more. You got to work from both ends, bottom line. You have to work from both ends. And sometimes, um, in fact, that's really a lot of the inspiration for moving into this realm, which is more paradigm thinking and scholarship and, you know, like program development on things that are, um, you know, long burns, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it really came from the fact that like from the inside, you could only do so much. And, and I struggle with that as a leader because I loved being in a school. I loved running a school. You're affecting 2000 lives. And you're getting flow like nonstop. It's just amazingly fulfilling. But we have to do some massive work and scale that. Um, and we have to transform the education industrial model, period. And so you have to do that working from both ends. So that's what I'm excited about today, even though it is uh, like, you know, Sisyphus for sure. Um, you are... I feel like today, so as a professor, when I was at the University of Denver as an ed leadership professor, every single student who came in wanted to transform the system. Mm -hmm. uh, and the work we're talking about is about how to do that from within. So we need momentum and we need some breakthroughs to do that. What I've found is, uh, so to do that from within, to do it from, from without, well, we've done a lot of that with the, with the uh, outside capital that's been flowing into the education and the learning spaces. That was the initial scholarship that I was in. So we can't solve this break from the industrial model without working from both ends. But the thing that I would argue to, to the high heavens is mm -hmm. you're never going to get to that unless we deal with some of the core issues at the heart of uh, of this inside out work that we have to do. So the way I would describe that is we know we want to do these things. We know we want to have changes. We know we have leaders that have desire to bring, you know, reform or not reform, but, um, you know, all new ways of, of learning. But unless you're willing to really look inside and see what motivates you, it's very difficult to do that. And so we call this adaptive shifts versus technical shifts. And I think we emphasize a lot of the technical shifts first that we need to do a new program, uh, a new way of doing things, new credentials. Those are all technical fixes. Adaptive fixes or adaptive shifts will ask us to look at organizational behavior. Are we doing the adapting that we need to do at the organizational level, at the personal level? to make those shifts happen. So I know that's kind of a little bit abstract, but you have to do it from both ends is really the, the best way I would put it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think that there is, 
so much value in thinking with a blank slate mindset, but there's also a real practicality of how big and how entrenched the system is and how many people are involved in the system, not just those who work, but literally the entire American society is involved in education in one way or another, whether they believe it or not, they're paying taxes. So they they are. Um, And certainly most everyone is involved in some direct way with um, either children going through or living near a school or being involved in, you know, some sort of education-based business and or, you know, community events. So it is, it's a powerful thing. So Mel, if I could ask you then, because you have worked with organizations that, you know, are scaled out consulting firms that come in and do some major projects and major uh, consulting contracts. What are your thoughts on the inside out, outside in? Um, you know, how, how do you bridge that? And, and what, what are some formulas for you? So I, you know, being, like I said, being somewhere caught in the middle and maybe it's, I call myself a centrist, but maybe it's that I just haven't decided yet um, where I fit in the, in the revolution of education. But I think that one of the problems with the outside in approach, well, challenges is making sure that everyone on the table really truly understands the issues that are happening inside, because there's a lot of Although you don't want, you know, and by flip side of that, the challenge on the inside is to ever see the forest for the trees, right? If you are so deeply entrenched in everything that is day to day and in the weeds, it's really hard to think out of the box and be up at the 30,000 foot level and really think about things that could present themselves in a new way. At the same time, when you come in and you might have all these big ideas, you, it is such a complex system and so many moving parts that if you don't really understand empathetically or have never been there um, and walked in those shoes, um, you don't necessarily know how some of that stuff will land, right? Like the best intentions can go awry because they just don't land the way that you thought they would because there's a nuance that no one talks about. It's just kind of known. And, you know, I'm using air quotes here because I'm on video, but no one can see me on the podcast. But, you know, it's just kind of air quote known. Um, as a norm. And so anyone inside would know that that's going to be, you know, a red flag or a yellow flag or, or an obstacle. But if you're coming from the outside, you may not realize that. And so that's really where I see the challenge. I think there's value in both because I do think when you're in it, it is really hard to get the 30,000 foot view, but when you're out of it, it's really hard to understand all the nuances that can really thwart some really good ideas. And I think we see really good ideas come down the pipe all the time from innovators who get stumped exactly at that point where they hit some challenge that it just never occurred to them would be a challenge. And, and it is, and then they, they don't know how to regain momentum for this initiative that they, they might have been pushing forward with, with great steam. That's yeah, that's great to hear that from you, that same kind of frustrations or the same kind of challenges, I should say that we see, Um, You know, and I think that that's where uh, right now we're in a really, really unique moment in history for for the education system, higher ed and and K-12 period, because we've now been these entrepreneurs that you're mentioning, these innovators. um, If we were to go back 15 or 20 years ago, that was really the opening up of the education space. Uh, Prior to that, it was relatively, uh, you know, a public system, a private system, but those two didn't intermingle. And uh, other than, you know, at, at the vendor level, 
it's blown wide open. And that's really now in this blended capital, <clears throat> excuse me, in this blended capital paradigm that we're in. And we have to build capacity to function in that. And that's really what I feel is like the key. And that's why I mentioned these adaptive shifts and these technical shifts have to happen simultaneously. Um, but we have a long way to go to build that capacity to learn how, and it works both ways, the funders, the foundations, Silicon Valley, they also need to um, get the big picture of the education space, not as just a market. It is a different uh, lens that you have to view it. So we have to get all of this sort of common ground built that we just had, we did not do. We did not do that over this last 15 years or so, 20 years of intense investments around the K-12 space in particular, we now have to look at this and say, okay, we have to kind of reset, create some common ground. And that begins, I think, with more of this um, philosophical discussion first, but rapidly transitioning this to, to practice. And we have to do it post-haste. It's what we talk about in our, in our book chapter about this. Mm -hmm. um, the COVID situation merely exposed what we were talking about, which was decades of, and definitely in the last four or five years accelerated, of um, just plopping on innovations without having really a, a plan and a system to, to vet and deploy that, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it really is the, the challenges for me uh, as kind of both an educator on the inside and an, and a passionate believer in an advocate for education on the outside is breaking it down. You know, I, I'm a high subscriber into the BJ Fogg method of behavioral modification, which is, you know, tiny steps is the, this vernacular that is used, but there's a whole Fogg behavioral method, um, academic side behind it. But I'm really a, a true advocate for the idea that things can, can be challenges can be so overwhelming that, we don't, we end up not taking any steps because every step looks too hard, right? And we have this mentality and, and a lot of this follows funding, right? This happens in the legislative um, arena all the time that if you don't propose something that's big enough, then people don't see it as change. And therefore you, we end up over-proposing and underfunding a lot of initiatives where if we just valued the quality, you know, the, the real quality of baby steps to get us to where, we want to go and broke stuff down to into things that are so simple we cannot fail that we really would continue to succeed we just have to have some longevity thinking and some patience and that is you know unfortunately because everything in you know it's always back to the money in some ways right um the how do you get the resources and sometimes it's human resources as well like human capital but we, if we could get people to believe that there is value in tiny steps towards a bigger goal I feel like we could make more progress than we make right now. I feel like we do giant steps and then we either burn out or fail at it. <laughs> so that's interesting that you mentioned the incremental steps or the small steps. Um, so, and you mentioned nuance before, cause that's really what it's about is um, how do we take these, you know, different approaches, incremental steps may work in some cases and in other cases it could be, how are you doing that? So mm -hmm. a good example of that when I was, working in Denver, uh, we, were, we were doing work around improvement science, and that is all about that. Improvement science is focused on making incremental steps and using the best practices really from the uh, medical field to 
you know, implement that into schools, basically education organizations and so forth. Let's do that again, going back to adaptive versus technical shifts, using improvement science in educational contexts is a technical solution, but have we dealt with the adaptive questions first, those that are dealing with our values? Well, the question then we would be asking around improvement science is if we want incremental steps for improvement, uh, that's great, but does that work in the context of education using the same methods, using the same processes that worked in the medical space? But the bigger question is, how are we approaching this? Is it coming in from a dominant standpoint? Look what happened in medical, in the medical field, or is this coming in from a equal standpoint where educators at the site level have buy-in and they're like, okay, I like this improvement science, this works, let's do this. So those are the kind of short circuits that we see where we've spent about the last 15 years or so working with solutions to get those incremental improvements, but we haven't really examined whether there was initial buy-in to do that. And I think that that's kind of the short circuiting that we're gonna continue to see unless we back up a little bit to, to get to those initial motivations that drove us there. I'll share a quick take that I saw the other day uh, as Elon Musk is putting his star base in, in order and so forth. He kind of outlined the five uh, processes that he goes through for his engineering team. And one really stood out that, that I said, oh my gosh, the education space could really benefit from looking at that. And that is engineers often spend a lot of time optimizing something that should not have been in the process from the get-go. So a lot of times we're getting incremental steps, we're doing that, but are we measuring the correct things? Are we doing this in the way that we should be doing it? The force for the trees sometimes is that we, we, we're not, we're actually measuring the wrong things, but we're not going to know that unless we're getting more voices around that from the beginning. And that to me is the educators, the teachers at the site level have way more voice, untapped potential to actually take these innovations, to take these ideas to the next level and to scale them. But we haven't created a system to actually even communicate that yet. It's still pretty much, a, uh, and I know this is probably just driving you insane because you've gone into the scenarios where you probably have seen urgent matters that need to be addressed. And there's no time to just go back and hear everybody's voices. This is not the way it works. So it's complex, but I think that those are the kind of things that, that, I, um, that I feel like we need to go back and really examine some of the core things that are driving those, the way that we measure incremental progress, you know? And that's a you know, rabbit hole like the, of context. What, what would be that, that one? And I think that that's where I've seen some of the open source concepts have success by really breaking down at the contextual level, at the community level, what makes sense in this case, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that it's, it, it's just so, it's really important to understand where the breakdowns are and then to focus attention as we can on those breakdowns because inevitably there are trends of where good ideas break down. And if we could identify and know, okay, this is the roadblock we're going to get to. Now, how do we make sure we're prepared to kind of overcome that in that space? Yeah. Then, you know, 
it, we could hope that we that we can move stuff forward, you know, in a more rapid way. Yep, yep. So I asked this of every guest, I'm gonna switch gears, I always do. Um, and tell us about an early education memory or an education memory um, that really stuck with you, that something that made an impact um, long-term kind of on you or that you recall often. Wow, you know, I think one of the, um, so I would have to say it's more of an era than a moment. Um, but when I was a uh, kid, I, um, Grew up in down. I grew up in a downtown community, very urban environment. Sorry, my dog there. Yeah. Um, I grew up in an urban environment, and uh, I would often skip school. And but what I would do when I skipped school is, and the way it would work out is, I would just watch the bus roll up, and I just would decide. Sometimes my sister and I would be like, you know what? Let's just go hang out in the city today. <laughs> and uh, we would do that quite often. Um, and, you know, and this was like maybe like fifth grade, sixth grade, thereabouts. And uh, the world was kind of our oyster there as far as learning. So, but the things that we did were we'd go down to the local library and hang out uh, and go down in the basement uh, where they had the typewriter and some uh, early stage computers and dabble. Nobody messed with us. Nobody asked us why we weren't in school. Uh, we would go and um, get books and read. Uh, I'd go to the shuffleboard club, which was a, a, an organ, you know, it was a, a space here in the area where the retirees would just hang out. And I'd go there and um, I figured out how to get a Pepsi out of the machine for free. And I'd get a Pepsi and then I would just hang out and hear the stories from these, these uh, older folks, this dying generation that was there. And, uh, I would go to the chess club. And so that to me is the earliest, um, you know, or not the earliest, but like the, the most formidable educational experiences that I can recall is just really learning from our city and from the world around us. And I think maybe that gets to one of your earlier questions around, maybe that's a hidden passion of mine is how do we tap into the, the amazing learning that's all around us? Uh, and that was, you know, for years, and it affected my pedagogy as an instructor too. You know, knowing that it's all around us, we just have to kind of find it. And that's just a few examples of what we did skipping school. Yeah, I love it so much. Um, I I think that there is so much power in um, experiential learning, right? And one of the things I actually had this um, conversation with someone on a podcast um, earlier today that one of the things if I could do going back to our question of like start from the outside and, and recreate it with a blank slate, um, education is children and, and even adults, but people, humans want, we have an innate desire to want to learn, right? And that desire gets crushed when we end up in a system that doesn't excite us yeah. or leaves us behind or doesn't really see us um, or hear us or understand our concerns, right? And the standardization of the American education system is, you know, has a, a whole lot of reasons why it came up and there's a whole lot of value in certain pieces and parts of it, but there's what it lost, what it loses is that individuality, right? And that experiential hands-on, let me follow my own desire of learning and then figure it out and then have someone there at some point, whether that is a 
uh, you know, someone you're just viewing or someone you're running into or an actual parent or an actual teacher or that helps guide, like helps you process what it is you've seen and, and heard and learned, right? So like what you really need is that um, that person to help you process when you can't process it yourself. You, you've, you know, taken it all in like a sponge, but now you have to understand, you know, when you squeeze out the sponge and the water is purple, like why? Right. And yeah. so yeah. if I could, you know, kind of re-examine education, I would, I would want to figure out ways for more customized learning because exactly what you described in your skipping school environment, right? Oh, absolutely. Your own set of customized learning and how valuable yeah. it was and how much you learned because it was something you were actually interested in learning. And sometimes just following your curiosity is exactly what we do, but we kill kids' curiosity with a lot of the things um, that we do. And, you know, there are, uh, you know, not to discount all educators, because I know there are a lot of educators out there that work really hard to inspire kids and to build their curiosity and to offer those kind of experiences, but they are still trapped in this kind of box of what is allowed. There's a specific school day and there's a specific school environment and there's a specific, you know, limitation on, you know, how much resources they have and where they're allowed to teach and, and, you know, at a certain hour and whatever. And so I, I, um, I love that story for so many reasons and especially around my own personal belief in, in like the quality of real, uh, kind of igniting learning, um, in the way that it's naturally supposed to ignite in the human spirit. <laughs> Yeah, so if I could just add on to that, I want to say that um, the what you just brought up of personalized learning is such a great example of the way we take something that I'm describing as this sort of organic, holistic piece and experience, but we're going to package it and get it out there at scale in our current model. And we have to, that's the idea is like how, but the question is then how, right? And so I think this is where it bridges some of these um, ideas that we talked about in our chapter and that, you know, I, I keep mentioning around um, bringing in these technologist mindsets or these sort of open source ideas. The question then is, how will we do it? That's mm -hmm. the thing. So you just identified the, and this is the bridging between the abstract and the practice. You just mentioned individualized learning, and that is just one of a massive, massive amount of new innovations around micro-credentialing, uh, place-based learning. I could go on and on and on. All of those are really rooted in, the majority of those today are rooted in progressivism that uh, already happened 100 years ago with the Chicago School and John Dewey. We know these things. We know everything there is to know about knowing is the, the old adage. The question is, is if we've failed time and time again to deploy them at scale in equitable means and equitable ways. And this is only going to get even more difficult as more ideas and the decentralization of knowledge and agencies and capital happens. So as this accelerates, we're going to see more ideas, more agencies, more capital, more influence, and it's gonna get more chaotic. The only way forward or the best way forward is what colleagues and I are talking about is to get more people around this. And the only way to do that is to develop structures and systems at the district level, at the state level mm -hmm. that are sort of open and public, but not public in the traditional sense, public in a technological sense. And we use use cases where if you backed up 20 years ago or 30 years ago in the technology space, they were just as frustrated in many ways and, and skeptical that you could do these things. If you back up right now, 
20 years ago and someone were to tell you, we don't need scholars to write encyclopedias. We can do this at a, at, on an open source level. When Jimbo Wales said that or when Wikipedia was founded, mm -hmm. they would have laughed you out of there and everybody said you can't do that. Is mm -hmm. Wikipedia perfect? Absolutely, it's not perfect, mm -hmm. but it is absolutely reliable. Any, you, you can't say that that's less reliable really than some you know, um, uh, encyclopedia that's in your, you know, that's codified and then it's outdated. I mean, the, the fact is, is that we've proven over and over again that if you get more people around this and you create the governance systems, whether it's standards, whether it's individualized learning, whether it's place-based learning or any of these innovations, you can have this deployed and sustainable if you get more people around the, the deployment of that. And that's, I think, where, where we're at today is an urgent call to rethink how we're establishing governance and vetting and deployment of these innovations in the education space. Because if we don't do this, utilizing some of the um, the the ways this has worked in other settings and other use cases, well, this is going to become a, um, a war zone for ideology and politics and money. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at with this. And Absolutely. COVID exposed that. COVID exposed that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it is really, I love the term the war zone. I mean, it's scary, but also true, right? I mean, that is, that's exactly where we're, where we're going, where we're becoming. Um, what's, what's history? What's the subject history going to look like in five years? Right, right. You know, and there's a, there's a huge, um, uh, you know, debate. We, when we look at other countries, we don't, the U.S. never likes to look at other countries, right? <laughs> we just, in general, like academics um, sometimes do a lot of great work at studying what works and what doesn't work in other, um, in other countries. And, you know, in general, uh, particularly around the policymaking, we don't ever want to use examples that that aren't us because um, we're, you know, homegrown. But there is value in looking at both what works and what fails in other areas so that we don't have to repeat those mistakes and or we can adopt some of those things um, here. And even if they're adopted in a slightly different way, take advantage of them. And one of the things that that comes up a lot in the history debate is, you know, you know, are we, you know, are we erasing history? Are we, but in, you know, we'll talk about, you'll have someone saying, uh, you know, you're erasing history by, you know, taking down certain statues or whatever. And in the same breath, they don't want to teach certain subjects, certain pieces of history that really we've erased for a, a super long time. Um, pieces about race and about slavery that we're not bringing back, that we're, or have been slowly creeping back into the classroom as they should. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a movement to, to take those back out of the classroom. And so there's a really, um, kind of interesting model to look at because obviously Europe, um, and well, and other parts of the world in general, but particularly Europe has a, uh, enormous amount of history, well more than uh, the U.S. and how they deal with the ups and downs of their past, the black spots and the mm -hmm. and the triumphs of of their past. And there's a lot to be learned for how, you know, how you provide a well-rounded education that um, is that should not be, in my opinion, politicized. It should just be these things happened, and you can take them and process them exactly how you want to. The good, the bad, the ugly, right? Um, you know, these things all happened. <laughs> And I, I think that 
that illustrates the history example just illustrates the um, and as a former history teacher I just think back now like the lies that I told because this was just the the, the discourse of the day you know like civil war was about states rights or things that you know it's just like right what? you know but here we are today where we're just beginning what will be um, this period of vacillation on what is this discipline what is this history and it's going to be based on what state you're in it's going to be based on the context of your individual localized community um so how do we deal with that you know and i feel like um if we continue to rely on centralized codified standards that come out every five years and this is it this is well that's going to be so vulnerable to manipulation and ideology and the winds, the political winds, um, which in many ways, that was what it, uh, that was really the history that was in that book that I taught that that's how we did things, but that's no longer viable. And I think that's ultimately the, the, the paradigm shift of decentralized information is it's no longer viable to, to allow one uh, narrative and one product and one reason uh to to dictate why we do things so we have to create new systems that are going to hear everyone's voices and come up with what i love this is um in the uh, book not in our chapter but in that book that we uh were in but it's on negotiated truths and we have to get to a, a world in education where there are negotiated truths and we say this is the version for this year this is the 2021 version of how we're going to do this this is the version for the next two years um, and that requires a completely different system and philosophy and ethos than what we currently have which is this is the plan this is because they said it's the plan and yeah at yeah. the central level, whatever that may be. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, no one negotiated on that, but okay. Right, right. Um, but all right, I guess we'll guess we'll figure that out, right? Um, yeah. Well, um, as we start to wrap up, and we could talk about this for hours because um, there is so much, uh, so much philosophical nuance in in the way that the education system is is being molded and transformed, you know, both politically and at the and quite frankly at the community level. So as we look at the generations of parents that come through, right? As as you know, there is a different set of values in the millennial parents than there was in the Gen X parents, than there certainly was in the baby boomer parents. You know, in terms of value around education and around um, what that should look like and what their their child should be experiencing in both the K-12 and at the higher ed level, um, which is a whole other discussion about ROI of college and, and how we make a, a kind of a blended post-secondary experience. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of that, but what would you say are kind of the top, uh, I don't know, two or three things that, that keep you up at night? What are the things that you think most about and that you hope to, to be involved in making some kind of change? On the education side or just broadly um so on the education side i would say that uh what what keeps me up at night is definitely this what we were just talking about just this um the urgency around um 
we're falling apart at the seams. And as ultimately uh, the core of the work that I do, whether it was historically as an educator or today with open or the scholarships, it's about civics and it's about civilization and us as humanity uh, sense-making and building together. And, you know, like climate change, we are at this point of, you know, we're at the Rubicon here where if we don't get a hold of this, it's going to be um, it's simple mathematics and complexity theory. Things are more and more uh, dispersed and distributed. That means more narratives, more ideas, more views, more outlets, more, um, you know, media. So that's what keeps me up at night is the urgency to get a hold of this from a um, from an institutional level. Uh, and then, you know, on a more practical level in my own world, um, what keeps me up at night is these initiatives that we have, whether it's open or whether it's so many great entrepreneurs that you've met and I've met, we know this is just barely tapping, barely, barely tapping um, the great ideas that are there. And what keeps me up at night there is how do we get capital into these ideas? Um, you know, it is and, and wrestle it away from uh, wherever it might be and do it in, in small talk about small incremental is, you know, I would love to see a lot more small bets than these big bets. And I would love to see a lot of failures that are, um, you know, small fails and, you know, failing forward for a lot of these great, great social entrepreneurs that are out there. Those are the things that kind of keep me up at night is we're barely scratching the surface on funding and um, getting some of these entrepreneurs uh, an opportunity to build on their ideas. They're breaking, they're trying to break through the industrial model and it's not designed for that. Um, and so that's a whole nother space that we could have a whole nother podcast on, but we, uh, those are the two key things that, you know, on a broad level society and on a micro level, how do we get some of these great ideas um, funded and uh, moving along? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, you know, I hate that life revolves around kind of the capital involved in making some of this stuff work, but it's just reality, right? Both both financial capital and human capital of, of ideas and and kind of the power structure, right? The the power to be an influencer, both legitimate power of like a legislative um, legislative buy-in and the and the and then you know, the, the subtle power of just being an influencer and a person who can drive change. Um, and we can all hope to do that, but it, it's still, you know, there are only select people who are those are in those positions. And, and yeah. then you've got, and then you've got the funders, right? Like the, and so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Those things are also, you know, where I get stumped in the, in the frustration cycle of wanting to be a change maker and wanting to um, kind of be a part of change. Oh yeah, you've mentored plenty, so you you've experienced it firsthand. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that, and I, I won't say which ones, but you know that just a small amount was a game changer for some of these um, nonprofits or social enterprises. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's kind of again part of the sort of the dent in the universe that myself and some of my colleagues are trying to do is we're trying to you know, nudge 
when we create leadership orientations or these conversations around um, the paradigm shifts, what we're really doing is gearing this towards some of these decision makers and some of these uh, folks who may have influence and get them to understand that this is um, a shift we have to do in, inside out to, to bring these innovations, uh, you know, in the, in, into the world, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, as always, there is more to be had, but we have, um, I totally appreciate you jumping on today and just letting us um, learn more about Learn Open for an example, and then how those illustrations of what has come out of that, as well as just kind of, you know, the philosophy of education and where we're going and, and the challenges we have. And um, I am That's proud right. and honored to continue to be a, a education warrior in the weeds with you and in different uh crossing crossing um, ships paths or whatever but likewise likewise always love working with you mel yeah thanks so much for being here and i appreciate your input okay bye bye this has been dissecting education with your host dr melanie hicks a production of in pursuit research outcomes driven impact focus thanks and we'll see you on another episode soon